welcome everybody to the December episode of Hearsay. Uh, my name is Jacob Stuckin and I'm here with Albert Brown and Brennan Keynes. And today we're going to be talking about Orphan Wells and we're going to be interviewing the di- Executive Director of the Orphan Well Association. And one of the points that you're going to be hearing about in our interview that's coming up here is about the Supreme Court of Canada's Redwater decision, otherwise known as uh, Orphan Well Association and Grant Thornton. And this decision dealt with uh, the priority or the ranking of who gets paid uh, under the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, uh, which is the legislation in Canada, known as the also known as the BIA, uh, that deals with the claims of creditors and other individuals when a company uh, becomes bankrupt. So you'll want to listen for that in our interview. But without further ado, let's go to our interview with Lars. Uh, So we are here with uh, a very special guest from the Orphan Well Association. Uh, Would you mind introducing yourself and explaining your uh, role at the OWA? Sure. Uh, My name is Lars DePau. I'm the executive director at the Orphan Well Association. Um, So I report directly to the uh, board of directors of the uh, OWA and uh, basically manage all the operations. Excellent. And how long have you been there at the OWA? Um, I, uh, I started about two years ago, and that was just about the time that uh, the provincial government uh, announced that they were going to be giving a loan to the Orphan Well Association of $235 million. So I was brought in to uh, help uh, guide the organization through that big transition. What was your career path and sort of how did it lead to the OWA in particular? Sure. Um, so I'm originally from uh, Swift Current, Saskatchewan, um, but uh, when I was looking on what I was going to do for career path, um, I was encouraged to try something new at that time, which was uh, environmental engineering. So pretty common now, but uh, not at that time. Um, most uh, most universities at that time had um, an engineering discipline that had a minor in environmental, which tended just to be a very single course on, on biology or something. Um, so I ended up going out to the University of Guelph, which had a dedicated program on that. And uh, I took my, uh, my bachelor's and master's out there at the University of Guelph. When I graduated, though, um, I wanted to move back out west and, and came back to Calgary. Um, so I came out here in, in 99. And like most uh, young graduates, I started out in the uh, consulting business on the environmental side. Um, so I was uh, um, focused on uh, soil and groundwater um, as well as environmental uh, liability assessments within the oil and gas sector. So all my work was within the oil and gas sector. Um, after working in the consulting uh, industry for a couple of years, I was approached by a, a producer um, that I was working through on the consulting side to um, come in in-house. So it was a, a smaller company at that time that was busy on acquisitions and uh, I, I started with them. And uh, I spent 13 years with that organization and uh, it, it grew from a small company to one of the biggest. Um, and so I dealt with a lot of acquisitions and divestures. I ended up managing the program there at that company that included everything from day-to-day type issues like spill response, um, corporate issues like greenhouse gases and, and uh, environmental liability management acquisitions and divestures. So there's lots of components that I, I handled from um, and had at one point a fairly big team. Um, but like a lot of organizations, we uh, we went through a downturn and uh, um, our group was shrunk pretty much from a group of about 20 to one. So 
<laughs> a big change. Um, I, I then transitioned into uh, working for a service company that worked on liability management in the oil and gas sector. Um, and so um, a lot of similarities on the work I was doing. Then on back to the consulting side, again, focused on um, acquisitions, divestitures, and liability management. And then from there, came over to the Orphan Well Association. Can you tell us a little bit about the Orphan Well Association, in, like in terms of its mandate and organizational structures? Sure. Um, well, maybe I'll start at the top. Um, so we have a board of directors, um, and that's who I report to. So our, our board is made up of three member organizations, which is the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, which or CAP, um, the Explorers and Producers of Canada, um, EPAC, which tends to be smaller companies, and the Alberta Energy Regulator, or the AER. And so there's six voting members um, and, and, uh, that are appointed by those members. And we also have an honorary non-voting member from Alberta Environment on our board of directors. So um, our, our mandate is pretty simple. It's to manage the decommissioning and reclamation of orphan properties in the province of Alberta. Um, now, th that's going to take a little bit of explaining as to what that actually is. Um, so we're a delegated authority of the energy regulator. And so what that means within the legislation is the re regulator has um, the legislative powers to do decommissioning and reclamation powers. So that, those are the powers that the, um, the, the, the legislature gives the energy regulator. Then the energy regulator, in turn, delegates us to do it as an independent third body, um, third-party body. Um, so we have a lot of the powers of the regulator to do that decommissioning and reclamation work, but, but we don't, we're not a regulator. So we're financially and legally separate from the energy regulator. And I think, you know, in my time there, this is one of the big things that people are often confused about. So up until about a year and a half ago, we subleased space from the energy regulator. And part of that included IT support. So we had our offices at the energy regulator. We had energy regulator email addresses. We had energy uh, regulator phone numbers. If you came to visit us, you checked in with energy regulator security. So people obviously thought that we looked a lot like the regulator. We were part of the regulator, but we've always been financially and legally separate. Um, so so, so our, our job is just to do the decommissioning and reclamation of orphan property. So again, this is something people often get confused about on what is an orphan. So um, it's actually a legal definition, um, and it's within a, a couple of different acts. So it is, first and foremost, it's a, um, a site within the oil and gas sector. It can be anything, a well, a facility, a pipeline, an associated site, a road, um, a borrow pit, anything. Um, but there can be no um, viable company associated with that asset. Now, a lot of people don't realize that there's fractional ownership in a lot of um, oil and gas sites. So they're, they're called working interest participants. So even though there's a licensee whose name's on the gate, they're on the lease, they're, they're dealing with everything, there can be fractional ownership behind that. So um, for us to be involved, first and foremost, there can be no other party involved. So in some of these issues where there's no longer an operator, there could still be a company that's a 1% interest in the company. And so they, they actually are responsible for doing the work. The site doesn't get designated as an orphan. Um, the other component that makes it an orphan is if the energy regulator actually has to designate it as such. So there's a review process that happens. So those are the two, two big things before it can be an orphan. No working interest participants, so 100%, no other viable company around, and designated by the, the, uh, the energy regulator. So after they designate the site as an orphan, that's where we step in and get involved. 
So what is the process for abandoning a well? Uh, roughly, how much does it cost? How long will it take? Um, things of that nature. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I guess one of the terms that we are starting to use a little bit more, especially with dealing with um, the public, is we're calling it decommissioning as opposed to abandonment, right? Um, we found that a lot of stakeholders, when they hear the word abandon, get worried that you're actually leaving something behind, which is, is not actually the case. It's a regulatory term, but we, we, we are calling it more decommissioning, decommissioning and reclamation. Um, so any of the assets that come to us, whether they're well facility or pipeline need to be decommissioned. And really um, on the well, you're making sure that the producing zone that's way down in the well bore is sealed off and, and the whole well bore from top to bottom is in a safe state. And there's lots of equipment and process that goes involved and there's lots of rules and regulations that the province puts in place. And we have to follow all those rules. Every, every company does, whether it's a producer or ourselves, and we, we follow the same set. Um, on the decommissioning side, on the surface, you're talking about removing all the equipment. And sometimes that includes removing any contamination that might be in the vessels and making sure everything again is in a safe state. Th then you move into the um, assessment phase and making sure that the, um, the surrounding area meets the criteria. So you're looking at assessing any potential risk from a soil and groundwater impact side, which includes, you know, um, reviewing air photos, looking at historical records, and then potentially doing additional soil sampling. And then after you've determined what the contaminations are, if there are any, is that you move into remediation, which is dealing with those contaminants. After you've done that, you move into reclamation, which is about getting the soil back to an equivalent capability and get the vegetation um, looking equivalent. And again, so it's not to make it the same as what it was before, but to making sure that it looks like it's not at a place with the, the surrounding area. Now, when you ask the question about what does it cost on average, this, this is a very interesting question. Lots of people have different opinions on it. And, you know, um, from our standpoint, I can tell you what the averages we have seen. Um, you know, we, we've done a lot of work in this area over the last two years. Um, you know, we were looking at in the neighborhood of, of you know, getting close to 2,000 wells that we've done. It's a lot of work. Um, and, and, you know, but when you look at the provincial population, there's over 200,000. So it's 1%. So is, is the numbers we've done actually representative of the industry numbers? I haven't done that analysis. Um, but I can tell you that the numbers that, that we have um, for the work that we've done is that on the, 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 the downhole side on the decommissioning of the well bore, um, it's about 34,000, um, per, per well. And then on the reclamation side, it's about 27,000. And again, there's lots of criteria that goes into that. The range is, you know, is quite dramatic. Um, there's some that are very cheap and there's some that are very expensive. Um, so it, it's always tough to say what, what does it cost? Cause you know, you know, I've been on the, the consulting side when I've been talking with companies that are buying assets and, you know, would I use these numbers across the board? No, you have to look at the specifics. Um, but I think that we have a good representative number. Um, the energy regulator also has something that are called Directive 11. And, and compared to the Directive 11 numbers, we're sort of lower than they are estimating on the abandonment side and higher than they're estimating on the reclamation side. But in general, we're in the, the same ballpark. Gotcha. And I think that's something that uh, we're keenly aware of as law students. You know, it, it depends is a very, it's a very loaded uh, answer, but it's, it's true in, in some cases. Uh, it really does vary and, and will continue to vary, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and I would say even on an individual site, after we've done a project and we're doing our look back, you know, someone says, well, could you have done better? And you're like, well, 
yeah, I mean, we, we learned a lot on that one operation. So yeah, we could have done a lot better. Um, but you don't know that. I mean, someone says, if you tried something different completely, you know, I, I can't say it would have been better or not necessarily because you don't know, you don't get to try these projects twice. Right. But with, within the work that we're doing, um, we are, we are approaching our work with something that we're some called an area-based closure program. And so we're going into the same area and doing basically the same operation, but on different assets at the same time. And so you learn a lot about the, uh, the assets in that area. Um, so you go into it, if you look back, these are wells that were drilled and constructed at the same time. They were completed into the same zone. Roughly the same fluids were coming to surface. Um, they were operated in the same way. They had the same chemical programs. Um, so the problems that you start seeing from one site to another start replicating it. So we actually get a huge amount of our cost savings from understanding those area type issues. And that's where, you I mean, again, our scale helps us a lot to save money. If we were only doing, you know, five wells versus 800, we wouldn't reach the same efficiencies. And so again, our averages are representative for what we're doing, but you can't necessarily apply it to every site across every company, across the whole province, or even across Western Canada. Uh, who are some key stakeholders that the Orphan Well Association interacts with? Yeah, we, we uh, interact with a lot of stakeholders. Um, so, I mean, uh, we, we deal with uh, our industry funding partners, um, we deal with the um, organizations and associations that they, they deal with that are also on our board. So CAP and EPAC were the two. Um, we, we deal with um, individual companies that are interested. We deal with the regulator, obviously. So that's both Alberta Environment and potentially uh, Alberta Environment. We're dealing with the government of Alberta on lots of different uh, components. Um, we deal with individuals like Farmers Advocate. We deal with Pemba Institute and other NGOs. We deal with synergy groups. We obviously deal with landowners on an indiv individual basis. Um, we have a, a huge impact on our contractors and subcontractors, um, you know, First Nations. And, you know, obviously we deal a lot with the media as well because they're, they're keenly aware of this issue and trying to get their, um, get their, their, their member or sorry, um, listeners to, to understand what's going on. Right. Yeah. It's, it's something that we all have, a have an interest in indirectly or directly. Yep. And when you're dealing with these stakeholders, like landowners or CAP or two very different types of stakeholders, how does that play into how Orphan Wells makes its decisions? Well, so, you mean, um, we do try to look at it from a, a principled approach and look at it in our priorities, um, which are, our priorities are structured from our, our board of directors. And, you know, even though our directors are appointed by members such as CAP, EPAC, and the energy regulator, their first duty as a director, like any director of a corporation, is to that, that association, right? So, so we get that direction from our board of directors. And, and really, we're trying to balance everything, which is quite difficult. Um, we're trying to be respectful of the money that's being provided us from the, uh, the funding partners from the oil and gas industry. But we also realize that stakeholders on the ground, landowners, are being quite impacted and they tend to be quite impacted even before we come in there because of they're dealing with a company that's going through insolvency. So it's quite a, a, um, a difficult balancing act about this. Um, and even within dealing with, you know, landowners, we're having to make decisions about which sites are, are done and which ones are not done, which can impact them as well. So we really try to take a, a principled and priority approach with it. So first and foremost, our top priority is to make sure that we're protecting uh, public safety and the environment. 
So whenever an asset comes in, we are doing a risk assessment and looking to say, you know, where does this fall in with our overall priorities? So for example, um, some of the assets that we got from Lexon, um, just south of Calgary here were critical sour. So they had, some of them had up to 40% H2S. Some of them were in proximity to the new, new hospital. So when you look at those ones, you're saying, okay, that's, that's a top priority. That's a top priority. We got to get that done. And, and we, we've done them too, right? But, but we always are balancing that with our current plans. Um, the next one that we look at then is about, um, how to be as efficient with the dollars that we have. And so we're doing those area-based closure programs. Um, within that then too, we're also trying to say, we want to move as many sites from, you know, inactive full through decommissioning also then to full reclamation. We don't want to do all the decommissioning and leave all the reclamation to the end. We want to be able to, you know, once we start a project, take it all the way to the end. And then the final one that we look at is, is really from a chronology standpoint and trying to make sure that if there are sites that have been in our inventory for a long time, that we do get those dealt with as well. Excellent. Um, so when the Orphan Wells Association takes over Orphan Wells, uh, are they in charge of physically uh, decommissioning these wells? If not, who takes that responsibility on? Yeah, so we are the ones that uh, have to do the decommissioning and reclamation of these assets. So um, again, it's it's a little bit of a nuance that a lot of people don't understand. So these assets actually stay in the name of the defunct company. And so when a company has assets that are designated as orphan, they're struck from the corporate record, the assets stay in their name, but we do the work. Um, so how that work actually gets accomplished is that we deal with a prime contractor. Um, so we work pretty closely with the prime contractor, understanding the technical components, negotiating who the subcontractors are going to be. And then the sub or the prime contractor goes and does, does the work actually in the field. Um, but they're under our technical guidance. Prime contractor would be responsible for all the safety components, right? So if we said, you know, this is the zone in the wellbore that we want to have isolated, that's a technical discussion. Once they're out on site, deciding how the equipment's going to be set up, where they're going to be squeezing, that that's a safety type component, right? And so that that's where they make those decisions. But it's all under our umbrella. So currently, how is the Orphan Well Association uh, funded, and uh, how does that how does that work on a go forward basis? Yeah, so um, we are funded annually. Um, by an orphan levy that's, that's um, uh, the producers in Alberta pay. And how that's actually calculated is um, the energy regulator has a liability calculation called the uh, liability management ratio and it includes a, how basically every asset in the province. And so um, they add that up and that's the provincial number. And then each company pays um, a proportionate share of the levy equal to their proportionate share of the provincial liability. So if you had 5% of the provincial liability as designated by the regulator, you pay 5% of the levy. Um, so there's an annual levy. Um, and that's been going on for about 20 years. And the industry contribution to date is about $374 million. So it's, it's a lot of money. Um, we also did get a, a provincial grant from the provincial government um, in 2009 of $30 million. And then in 2017, there was a loan that was given to the Orphan Well Association of $235 million. So that, that loan was facilitated by a grant from the federal government to the provincial government to cover the interest on the money that would be lent to us. And then we we're repaying that loan back to the provincial government through the annual levy. So. It's, it's interesting when you look at that loan, 
Um, it was granted about two years ago. And at that time we had 1400 wells left to do. Since that time, we've done about 1300. So you mean the, the, the loan has actually accomplished what it was meant to do. Unfortunately, in that same time period, we've gotten a lot more wells and our inventory now is 3,400. So, you I mean, I don't think anyone projected that, that this downturn would, would keep going in the way it is. Um, so th- th- that's how it's, it's being structured right now from a, um, a funding component. Has the Redwater decision, which affects the way in which environmental obligations and creditors are handled during an insolvency procedure, affected the Orphan Wells Association's relationship with other groups or the way in which you operate? Um, You know, it it hasn't really changed how we're tackling orphans. Um, Really, when a site's designated as an orphan, that's at the end of the line for that, that asset or that company. What it has changed a lot is about our involvement with, you know, and, and creditors up until that point, right? So the whole Redwater case was really about a couple different things that, that was relating to what could happen in an insolvency proceeding. And it was, you know, they were able to look at a company. And so hypothetically, you'd say there's a hundred wells and only 80 of them are good. And so they want to sell 80 of those wells. And then the 20, they were able to just say, well, someone else will take care of it. Don't worry about it. And what Redwater said is, no, you can't just sever those responsibilities. And, and the, regu- the regulator was trying to enforce those responsibilities and say, you can't, you can't just disclaim 20 sites and sell 80 to someone else. So when, when Redwater came in, it said, no, you can't do that. You, you, have, you have an obligation to the regulator and the regulator is not a creditor by enforcing um, their obligations. And the other one that was big within it was within the, the BIA saying that, that um, um, a receiver is not responsible for environmental issues, which again, the court upheld that, but they provided some clarity. And the, the, previ- the lower court's interpretation was that the, the receiver meant the estate of the receiver, where the Supreme Court said, no, the receiver is the company, for example. The company that's doing the receivership is not held liable, but the estate still is liable. So it hasn't changed how we deal with orphans. We still do the same decommissioning and reclamation. We're still dealing with stakeholders the same. Really what's changed is when a company is going into an insolvency um, um, proceedings that the um, whoever's looking at doing that, whether it's, you know, uh, liquidation or sale or, if, you know, looking at restructuring, they can't hive off some assets. And I think what you've seen now is that there's a couple examples where the creditors, if there are creditors involved, have looked at the asset and said, look, you know, if we sell, sold everything that's good in this base and still have to pay for the environmental obligations, there's not enough money in there to go around. And so that's where they're saying they're just walking away. And, and so we have a couple different examples of that. Um, so we, we obviously had the very high profile cases of, of uh, Trident and Houston. And so that's where, where we stepped in and appointed a receiver. Um, so really that's been the big change, at least from, from how our involvement has been going. In the wake of the Redwater decision, um, are the receiving companies, so in that instance, it'd be Grant Thornton, are, would they be obligated to pay for the, uh, the environmental obligations prior to the creditors up to the point of exhaustion of the assets that still retain their value? 
So I, I guess post Redwater, this is something that I don't think we've come to a clear example of yet. The, the ones that we're, as the Orphan Well Association has dealt with from a pointing receiver, there there are no other creditors that are involved. Um, and so the creditors that were involved have not been been there. I mean, someone's got to pay the receiver at the end of the day um, to do this work. Um, and the creditors aren't aren't stepping up to do it. And so really, I think with some of these ones, when we're when we are involved in appointing a receiver, we are actually looking at minimizing the liability that comes to the Orphan Well Association as opposed to maximizing the dollars that are sold. So, I mean, again, if you take a hypothetical example, if you had a company of 100 wells, well, you could sell one well and get a lot of money, or you could transfer the whole company or 99 of those assets, for example, for almost nothing because the value of those, those other wells offset the value of that one well. And so the, the um, objectives of the receiver are now different post-Redwater. And, you know, they're court appointed officer and they're doing what's ever best for the estate, but they have to look at the law on how that, that what's going to happen with that estate. So previously, there was a different objective. So in those sort of two and a half years under Redwater, they were really maximizing the dollar amount at the end of the estate. And now the ones at least we're involved with are looking at maximizing the or sorry, minimizing the liability that comes to the Orphan Well Association. Now, I suppose there's a hypothetical state there where, you know, at the end of that that uh, receivership, that there's more money left over than is needed for covering all the liabilities. And then that's when the creditors would get involved in having some of that money. The other example being, though, is that when um, the creditors are involved in the receivership. And so, again, there would be a belief that they would be able to satisfy all the needs and you I mean, obviously, you know, when you're going to those proceedings, no one's expecting to get a hundred cents on the dollar, but I think everyone involved would be hoping to have something and that the company would be a going concern after that. Uh, broadly speaking, what lessons have you taken away from your time at the Orphan Wells Association? And what do you hope the organization can accomplish in the future? Well, you know, um, this, this type of work's been going on for a long time, um, within the industry and there's lots of people been involved with it. The, the big one that we've seen is the power of these area-based closure programs. Um, they're quite, quite beneficial, at least from an economic standpoint. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of companies that are able to, to do those area-based closure programs, but you tend to need to have a certain materiality and threshold before you can start doing it. I mean, again, we're talking about doing 50 wells in an area, you know, if you're at three or four, it's not, you're not going to get those same efficiencies from those learnings that I talked about previously. So really the, the, the biggest one is, is about, you know, um, that the success of those programs, there's a part of it a little bit too, that, that from an organizational effectiveness is really having a team that's focused on, on one thing. And, you know, um, that's one of the things I kind of talk about with the producers is that we, as an association have only one mandate. Um, you know, if you are a group within a larger organization, um, doing this type of work, you're sometimes pulled and pushed in the different directions, right? Um, I know when I was working on the producer side, it wasn't uncommon to get to the near part of the end of the fiscal and all of a sudden, you know, your, your budget priorities have changed and you don't have as much money as you realized you did coming into that where we don't have that. So there's a lot of, um, components in that, that we get some successes, but again, I mean, 
the team that we have um, is is quite uh, an excellent one. Um, people are focused on the same thing. Um, priorities are very aligned, uh, very aligned with our, our uh, prime contractors and subcontractors, and it really is a, a great collaborative effort. And so, again, I mean, this is one of those nice things we talk about uh, being being uh, in a non-competitive space, um, at least from the standpoint of trying to get our costs down as low as possible. So, I mean, looking into the future, though, um, you know, I think that some of the things that, that we're looking for is, you know, how, how do we share the learnings that we have? How do we be, become more effective on a cost side? Making sure safety is always top priority as well. Um, and then how do we share some of those ones? Um, you know, and there's lots of things that we're looking at and lots of great ideas that, um, that, that, that we have and have been brought to us. And we've been sharing that with, um, you know, whether it's our, our, our members through CAP and EPAC and the AER, um, sharing them with the government as well making sure that uh, that we have the the proper tools to be able to deal with these issues going forward because I mean when the association was created it it was you know very small issue compared to now it, it, it world's dramatically changed in the last couple of years um, we'd like to thank you very much for uh, coming in to the uh, hearsay podcast and we wish you and the uh, orphan well association the best of luck in the future thank you that concludes the hearsay episode on orphan wells uh, many thanks to the orphan well association and to CJSW for helping us put together this podcast. Uh, The Hearsay podcast is run by Pro Bono Students Canada in conjunction with CJSW and is on Treaty 7 land. You can find other episodes of the Hearsay podcast and this one at the CJSW website, on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. Thanks for listening.